0: Easter Sunday, the 14th of April, 1471, at Barnet, Edward IV emerged unscathed from yet another maelstrom of a battle. It had been bloody, it had been muddled, but it had also been decisive. His enemies, the Earl of Warwick and his brother, were dead, and Edward was back in charge once more. Add to that the birth of a son at last, to his queen, Elizabeth, and you have the foundation of a Yorkist dynasty. But as we know, one problem remained, and it was no small matter. Queen Margaret of Anjou, wife of the imprisoned Henry VI, had landed at Weymouth on the Dorset coast within hours of Edward's victory. And she too brought a son who might be the foundation of a dynasty for Lancaster. Not only that, but her son, Edward of Westminster was far older than Edward the Fourth's, and certainly old enough to rule should any ill fate strike down his father Henry. Now if you are thinking that the arrival of Queen Margaret and her young son would pose a much less significant threat than the might of Warwick then think again. What was Warwick? A mere earl with no royal blood in his veins? All the same you might wonder, after so much turmoil and upheaval, during which Edward IV had occupied the throne for years, why would anyone want to restore a king like Henry VI, who at every turn had shown himself incapable of ruling wisely? The answer comes in several parts, really. Firstly, Margaret was offering a clear alternative to York, a return. ...to the legitimate line of kings, the heirs of the warrior king, Henry V. Also, no man in 15th century England was keen to be an oath-breaker. It was a convention by which men lived their lives. So the habit of loyalty was a strong incentive. Just consider how many men had fought and died for Henry VI already... ...despite his obvious shortcomings. Finally, Edward had promised a change for the better. Good government, offering prosperity, unity and the rule of law. But he had not delivered on all of that, and some folk decided that perhaps God was giving them another chance to put matters right. Warwick himself had profited, albeit temporarily, from a groundswell of support for the old Lancastrian regime. The challenge now for Margaret was, was to recapture that enthusiasm, having carelessly allowed it to wane while she dithered in France. Hearing of Warwick's disastrous defeat would have come as a body blow to Margaret. Though she may have cared little what became of her new ally himself, she could ill afford to lose the massive resources he had gathered in her husband's name. Now she had a decision to make. Fight or flee. To fight, would be to risk all on one throw of the dice. But would she ever have a better chance of recovering her husband's throne? She knew that she would not. One of her key advisers was Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, an experienced military commander. And for Somerset too, this was a last chance to regain his lost prominence in the Kingdom. She must have been encouraged by the positive reception she received in the South West. But Margaret was no fool. She would need more than the men of Dorset, Devon and Cornwall to get past Edward the Fourth. The big question for her was how to defeat Edward, whose power was once again considerable. But though Edward had London and much support in the Midlands, his hold on other areas was less secure. In Kent, for example, where Warwick had been perennially popular, and the North where there was much latent Lancastrian support. In those areas, Edward's control was tenuous at best. So Margaret, having reached Exeter and joined with the men raised in the far southwest, had to decide whether to head east to London, to draw upon support from Kent and perhaps some other southern counties, or to link up with Jasper Tudor in the Welsh marches and then march north to the Lancastrian heartland. While she formed her strategy Edward IV could only gather as large an army as possible and try to work out where she would go. He had patrols and scouts everywhere seeking a definitive indication of Margaret's intended route. She, on the other hand, sent out parties of men in various directions to deliberately mislead him. So another game of cat and mouse developed. If Edward guessed wrong, Margaret would slip past him, and a little further down the line, he would encounter her again with a much greater force at her back. Queen Margaret made her decision and headed north, and, as they say, the die was cast. Her army marched via Taunton, Wells and then Bristol, at each point fainting to go east to confuse Edward. On the 24th of April Edward went west to Windsor and then north to Abingdon where he pondered the possibilities for a day or so. If Margaret was heading north then she would have to cross the River Severn and once she did that she could meet up with Tudor's Welshman. She would be ahead of him and he would be unable to stop her progress northward. So Edward once again gambled and marched rapidly westwards. A march of 30 miles in a day brought him to Cirencester. But still he was unsure where the Lancastrian army was. This was an age where there were no drones, no aircraft, no satellite imaging, just plain old eyesight. Edward still hoped to stop Margaret near Cirencester and arrayed his army ready to do battle. But by Wednesday the 1st of May, Margaret's army was nowhere to be seen, possibly because it was still in Bristol. Somerset and Margaret were doing quite well in confusing Edward about their movements. On Thursday, the 2nd of May, Edward decided to make for Bristol, expecting to encounter the Lancastrians on the way and force them to fight. But instead, they were racing north towards Gloucester, where they hoped to cross the River Severn. Edward outmanoeuvred, could not now stop them from reaching Gloucester. But he sent riders ahead to the town, ordering the governor of Gloucester, Sir Richard Beauchamp, to close the gates to Margaret's army. All now hinged upon Beauchamp. It would not be too much of an exaggeration to say that the fate of Edward's crown lay in that one man's hands. Which way would he jump? There is evidence that there was some support for Margaret in the city, but Beauchamp owed his appointment to Edward and thus decided to close the city gates. This made the Lancastrian position suddenly very dangerous. The Yorkist army was hard upon their heels, so they could not assault the city and instead had to hurry on to the next river crossing, the ford at Tewkesbury, which they reached late on Friday the 3rd of May. Edward driving his troops hard, was catching up fast. He advanced for 30 miles, his army arrayed in their three battles as they were known, vanguard, centre and rearguard, ready to engage the enemy at a moment's notice. But by the time they rolled up south of Tewkesbury and rested for the night, they were exhausted. Though Margaret's army could not now escape the Yorkists, for crossing the Severn whilst under attack would not be a great plan. She was actually in a strong position to fight. She could choose the battleground, and it was well chosen. To attack, Edward's men would have to advance through a warren of lanes and hedgerows and cross several streams, climbing all the while before they could reach their opponents. For both sides, only one outcome would suffice. Complete victory and the death of the opposing leaders. This is not the place for an extensive assessment of the battle, but here it is in a nutshell. Edward, as we know, was not a commander who tended to wait very long once he saw his enemy. On Saturday morning he arrayed his army and attacked. His vanguard, led by his younger brother Richard of Gloucester, found the assault hard going, but they did possess more guns and archers than the Duke of Somerset and were able to put his defensive line under great pressure. Somerset responded by launching a swift and powerful counter-attack against Edward's centre. All hung in the balance as Gloucester was forced to turn to aid his brother. Gradually Somerset's men were forced back towards their own lines and then a vital intervention came. Edward had positioned 200 men in nearby parkland with a certain amount of license as to what they should do during the battle. As it happened, they chose to intervene and made a massive difference. The cream of Somerset's force was routed and mercilessly hacked down in what is still known as the Bloody Meadow. Edward then pressed on with the jugular within his grasp. Though it seems that Prince Edward fought bravely, the second stage of the battle was brief. Along with many of his comrades, the 18-year-old prince, the last hope of Lancaster, was killed. A few others, such as the Duke of Somerset himself, sought sanctuary in nearby Tewkesbury Abbey. It did him little good, for Edward's soldiers simply dragged them back out to face their punishment. Men like Somerset, who had already been pardoned once by Edward, could expect no mercy. And a couple of days later, they were executed. Queen Margaret, who had fled the field and forded the River Severn to escape, was soon captured and the Lancastrian dream was over. But it wasn't quite the end, for there were reports of revolts in Kent and the north. Though Edward had won two crushing and politically decisive battles in the space of a mere few weeks, he must now persuade his exhausted men to go on the campaign trail once more.